Welcome to the Freedom Times News Hour, brought to you by the Freedom Times newspaper. It's great to have your company. If you're available, we'd enjoy chatting with you at the freedomtimes.chattango.com. I'm Patricia Aiken. My Mr. Don Wassel is here, the founder and editor of the Freedom Times. Hey, Don. Hey, Patricia. How are you doing? Good. Oh, busy like crazy. How about you? Oh, yeah, busy, but uh, real, real excited about today's program. Excellent, excellent. Well, why don't I, uh, why don't I tell folks about um, who our guest is. Mr. Peter Rushton has been one of the UK's most active racial nationalists as a writer, speaker, street activist, and election campaigner for more than 30 years. During the 1990s and early 2000s, he was one of the closest allies of British National Party leader John Tyndall and played a major role in creating the BNP's famous branch in Oldham, Lancashire, where BNP parliamentary candidates polled 16.4% and 11.2% in the general election in 2001. Oldham became notorious as the front line of British uh, Britain's racial conflict with serious rioting in 2001, and the party made further advances in 2002 before the new BNP leader Nick Griffin expelled our guests as part of a purge of Tyndall supporters. Oldham and several other uh, strong party branches in Northern England then collapsed. At the end of 2002, uh, Mr. Rushton formed a new alliance with Mark Cotterell, editor of the Nationalist magazine Heritage and Destiny, which Mark had been publishing in the U.S. since 1999, pardon me, as a journal of American Friends of the BNP. Um, Mark was honored by being excluded from the U.S. in 2002 following coordinated harassment by our friends at the FBI and SPLC. After his return to England, Mark became aware of the underlying problem in Griffin's uh, BNP. In the 2003, he relaunched Heritage and Destiny with Mr. Rushton as his assistant editor. I'm sorry, I'm getting choked up about this. The magazine now appears bi-monthly and is about to publish its 114th issue. Wow. Mr. Rushton is also webmaster of the H&D site at heritageanddestiny.com. Heritage and Destiny is now independent of any party or faction, but for a few years in the 2000s, uh, Mr. Rushton campaigned for the <coughs> New England First Party uh, that Mark had set up and was election agent for the successful campaigns in 2006 when they were able to win two council seats in Blackburn and Darwin Borough. In the next decade of the 2000s, Peter worked with campaigns and supported historians and scientists who were persecuted, uh, prosecuted, and jailed across Europe for daring to challenge the mainstream accounts of World War II history, and particularly the alleged Holocaust or hollow hoax of six million Jews in supposed homicidal gas chambers. Historical orthodoxy in this area is uniquely protected by the full force of the criminal law across much of Europe. For more than a decade, Mr. Rushton was closely involved with the revisionist defense campaigns alongside Lady Michelle Renew and the late Richard Edmonds. As the UK enters a new political era post-Brexit, Mr. Rushton and the H&D seek to build intellectual foundations 
for the next stage of British racial nationalism, which has been in relative decline since the collapse of the BNP. In addition to practical support and analysis of political developments, Peter has recently become a, uh, begun a project to revive historical revisionism in the UK with a new blog, I love this, jailingopinions.com forward slash real history. Again, it's jailingopinions.com real history. The historical work is based on many years of work that Peter has carried out at the UK National Archives and at other academic institutions in the UK. He has become a particular expert in the archives of the British intelligence services, as well as gov official government records relating to British nationalists. During the past 18 months, He's built new connections with the elite of Europe's younger generation of racial nationalists, notably Heritage and Destiny's European correspondent, Isabel Peralta, the Spanish student and national socialist who was a guest speaker at H&D's most recent meeting in Lancashire. Reese, uh, meanwhile, in London, Mr. Russian is campaigning against the creation of a vast new Holocaust Memorial adjacent to Parliament in Westminster Abbey. This memorial and the current attempts to extradite French revisionist Vincent Reynard, who have been who has been in an Edinburgh jail for the past six months, despite the fact that he is not even accused of a crime under Scottish or English law, shows that historical revisionism is a vital component of any attempt to preserve and advance the cause of white race in European nations. Well, Don, with all that said, why don't you welcome Mr. Rushton to the Freedom Times News Hour? Hello, Peter. Are you there? Hi, Don. I'm very happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you. I'm uh, really glad. Uh, I, I think I've only actually met you one time, and that was at a, uh, an American Renaissance conference some years back. But I've been a yeah. big fan. Been, been, you know, I've read all that you write for Heritage and Destiny and in other places. And uh, I like to refer to you as a walking, talking encyclopedia. <laughs> Thank you very much, John. <laughs> well, Glad to be of use. Well, uh, you're of great use. You're very valuable to, uh, to nationalists um, here across the pond and where you are and all through Europe. Let me just start off. I want to ask something because I, I wonder about this sometimes. It probably is just going to show off my ignorance. But when I think of the UK and Great Britain, obviously you think of England, the great nation of England, the, the English Empire – the mother country of the United States, uh, so much that is good about our heritage and way of life came from England, and we owe an eternal large debt of gratitude to England. But there's also Great Britain, UK, there's the Republic of Ireland, there's Northern Ireland, there's Scotland, and Wales that are all part of Great Britain and the UK. But when I read or hear uh, things about nationalism, I often hear like British nationalism more or less used interchangeably with English nationalism. And I wonder sometimes, yeah. is, uh, is, is, can that be used interchangeably, or are there distinct differences between the two? Well, uh, most people in the British nationalist movement, in, in my side of the British nationalist movement, are racial nationalists. So it, it, it works on several different levels. You know, we are part of uh, the white race worldwide so we we are people of european ancestry first and foremost so we're right. defending the interests of the white race worldwide and our, our fellow europeans even if they don't speak english as their first language they are our brothers and sisters of course there's also the anglosphere worldwide that's another layer of cultural connection uh, people who as you say 
look in a certain sense to Britain as the mother country, whether they're part of the Commonwealth, as in Australia and New Zealand, or whether they're people like yourselves in the USA who've been independent of England for, and independent of Great Britain for rather longer. But we are all part of not only a racial but a cultural connection, a linguistic connection. And then within the UK, there's another layer again of uh, political and cultural connections. So the, the, we, we see ourselves, most of us in the British nationalist movement, see ourselves as defending the union at a political level, namely the union of England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Now, the, this is a particularly important question right now because the people of Northern Ireland, these people who fought at the front line against terror, murderous terrorist campaigns are in the process right now of being betrayed by our conservative, supposedly conservative government headed by the Indian billionaire uh, Rishi Sunak uh, here, here in London as part of a squalid deal with the European Union, uh, a, squ a squalid post-Brexit deal, this Conservative government has betrayed our fellow United Kingdom citizens in Northern Ireland and allowed, uh, if you like, a border to be drawn down the Irish Sea between England, Scotland and Wales on the one hand and Northern Ireland on the other. Now, this is a unique situation worldwide where part of the United Kingdom, part of our country, part of our nation is being for, for political reasons, as part of a political deal regarded as a foreign country and uh, treated differently with customs regulations, trade regulations, etc. So that Northern Ireland and, the, Rep and the, the Republic of Ireland, of course, remains part of the European Union. This Republic of Ireland uh, that Irish, you know, romantic Irish nationalists in the United States will have a certain, in my view, rather unrealistic idea of what the government in Dublin is really like. This is a supposedly Irish government. It's very, headed, very left wing, is it not? It's very left. Very left wing, headed by a homosexual uh, half Indian, fully part, fully signed up to the European Federalist Project, the sort of one world project. With, with Dublin, a city that was until, within living memory primarily white, certainly a good deal whiter than London until quite recently, now absolutely flooded with immigrants, with, as I say, both the, the Irish Prime Minister and the uh, uh, United Kingdom Prime Minister, both being of Indian origin, and we now have the First Minister of Scotland, of the so-called Scottish National Party, uh, recently elected in their, uh, in their leadership election, uh, of Pakistani origin and the, the leader of the opposition in Scotland, the leader of the Labour Party in Scotland, also of Pakistani origin. You really couldn't make it up how far right. the colonization of various aspects of the, of the, of the United Kingdom state has, has, has progressed. So the, the, uh, it's a question, going back to your original question, this business of England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, this, there are questions of cultural identity, which, just as in the United States, there are aspects of cultural identity that are at state level or at, at, at much smaller than state level, at, at town level, at locality level. And what goes to make up our outlook as nationalists is partly a matter of race, 
partly a matter of cultural identity and partly a matter of sovereignty at, 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 the, at the level of the, of, of the state which, uh, in, in, of course, we, we aren't a federal country in, in, in the United Kingdom. We are primarily uh, a unitary state based with a certain amount of devolution to the Scottish and Welsh uh, parliaments, but essentially a unitary state compared to the USA. Uh, and especially for people in Northern Ireland right now, defending that, that union of England, Scotland, Wales and, and, and Northern Ireland is of absolutely fundamental importance, not least because of the great sacrifices that people have, that several generations of Ulster men and women have made to resist IRA terrorism over the decades. Well, that's a great answer, uh, Peter. Let me, um, yeah, I can remember years ago, they, one of the sayings in, in the U.S. was that uh, England was more or less a decade ahead of us and the negative trends. But now, it just seems like the whole Western world is just one horror story after another, just as you briefly uh, said about the, the governments of the component parts of the UK. They're all they're all a nightmare of, of leftism and non-white hatred of one kind or another. But what I want to really want to do, um, there's so much I want to cover with you, and we only have a limited amount of time, but I want to go back in time a little bit, because uh, I know you know so much about the history of, of British nationalism. And so a lot of people listening may not know that in the 1970s, the National Front was very influential, had electoral success and large demonstrations and just was really on the map before the you know, inevitable factionalism and, and occurred, which seems to happen so often in both of our respective countries. But could you uh, just briefly uh, tell us about the National Front and, and the kind of influence and power it had at one time? Yeah, the, the National Front really, it, during the from the late 60s and through the 70s, was for a while a great success story. Just turning the clock back a little bit, in 67 and 68, the, the, the National Front, as the name implies, was a coming together of several different groups. So that in itself was a great triumph, people setting aside ego, setting aside factional differences, to come together in the, at the end of the 60s against what was increasingly clearly a racial and cultural war against white people in England. This was around the same time as a famous speech in April 1968 by the conservative politician Enoch Powell, referred to often as the Rivers of Blood speech, when he, he said the, that, those, that he could see that in the near future the black man would have the whip hand over the white man and quoted the Roman poet Virgil that I see, uh, uh, that the, 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 seeing the river Tiber foaming with much blood. And he was looking forward into into what was likely to happen if if the patterns of immigration continued. And the National Front grew from the late from its foundation in 67, 68 by about 1972, turning point with a parliamentary by-election in in West London, showed that the National Front was getting serious, despite our electoral system that doesn't favour small parties. From 1972 right the way through until 1979. The party was winning increasing support in parliamentary by-elections and local elections. 77, they won well over 100,000 votes in, in London, in the Greater London Council elections, and were uh, really becoming, uh, electorally speaking, the, the, the pretty much the strongest racial nationalist force in Europe. And, they, and uh, this was the, the, the glory days of that were, pretty, were the period when John Tyndall was party chairman right. and for a while successfully fought off attempts by the 
extreme violence on the streets by the left in those days, really extreme violence. And of course, um, uh, increasing attempts by the state to crack down on racial nationalism. You have to remember, American listeners have to remember that we do not have a constitutional right to free speech and free assembly in European countries, and and including in the UK. And during the 60s and the 70s, and then again more recently, there were increasingly strict laws against what was termed inciting racial hatred. And you you could literally go, I mean, several friends of mine have served prison sentences for this. Yeah, you document that. You do a lot of documentation of of that, what you're talking about in Heritage and Destiny. Yeah, that's right. Both from a point of view of reporting recent court cases and also we're in the position now to look back at the origins of those laws. And uh, it's very interesting that they, uh, when they first talked about that soon after the Second World War, they talked about a group libel act. So that you could you could be uh, prosecuted for uh, for for a libel against a, against a race in the same way as against an individual, but then they decided to move away from that legal principle towards a public order based principle. Now the importance of that is quite simple: a libel, whether it's against an individual or theoretically against a group, uh, you can. Uh, you can defend yourself against charges that you've libeled somebody by saying, well, no, what I said was actually true. So truth is a defense. You can't be libeling somebody if, if you're speaking the truth. But with a public order-based law, based on the medieval notion of so-called seditious libel, truth is no defense. Get that? Truth is no defense. Right. You, if, if, if you publish... Uh, an article about crime statistics, for example, about black crime statistics. If it's written in a certain way that the courts can say you, have, you, you, are, did, you, you are setting out to provoke, to incite racial hatred by reporting this, it is no defense for you to say, well, these crime statistics are actually correct. These things about black muggings or rapes or whatever it might be, and even now I've got to be careful how I how I put this to you over the in, in this interview, because I could be prosecuted for the, the, the way in which I speak about those issues here in the United Kingdom. I'm not prosecuted because I was lying, but prosecuted because I've spoken the truth in a way that might incite racial hatred. Right. That's the state of affairs here in the UK. And it's a sad one. And of course, it's not much better here in the U.S. We are talking to Peter Rushton. I'm Don Wassel. This is the American Freedom Time News Hour. We'll be back after these important messages. Stay here. For the past 14 years, it's been my privilege to host the National Intel Report on RBN, to offer a platform to interview exceptional guests, to provoke critical thought, and examine evidence, whether real, fake, or somewhere in between, and allow our audience to call in and participate with your input and questions in order to help us all reach an educated decision and arrive at our own truth. Our world has changed. It's now been turned on its head. Real is now considered fake and mainstream fake is now pushed as real, rather than any clear thinking, consensus, or rationale. 
Those few remaining beacons of light, the ones still shining through the mainstream media lies, propaganda, and deception, are being viciously attacked at every level through attempts at censorship, threatening advertisers, jailing hosts, and even killing journalists brave enough to speak the truth to you. We are in a war for our very freedom and existence, and through these despicable acts, freedom haters, collectivists, and communitarians have shown they will stop at nothing to blot out these last few beacons of light. Truth is becoming increasingly more difficult to unmask, just as the term unmasking itself is spoken by those usually anonymous sources. They promote their lies, wishing to mask the truths by ignoring it, vilifying it, or conspiratorializing it into a black hole abyss. Regrettably, RBN has reached the tipping point, and through internal audit and actuarial review, it has now been determined that the only life raft of survival to this network is to go the way of PBS, that being audience-supported. Like a cornered animal, the left with veracity is pulling out all the stops with every effort to effectively blacken our beacon forever. Help us, folks. Help yourselves. Don't let our light stop shining. Our motto has always been, because you can handle the truth. It's time to review your budget, folks. If you want the truth to keep flowing through RBN, go to republicbroadcasting.org and become a regular monthly donor of 30, 40, 50, or 100 or more a month and ensure you keep the truth flowing. Einstein once said, future medicine will be the medicine of frequencies. What did he know? Imagine you hear ocean waves caressing a beach, or a favorite song from the past, or the trickle of the babbling brook. All of these are sound frequencies that positively affect us. Terahertz is a soothing, healing frequency that has been proven to resonate at the same frequency as healthy cells. It penetrates the body and stimulates new healthy cell growth. Want to diminish muscle aches, joint pains, and experience a greater sense of well-being? Tired of spending money on short-term remedies that never seem to work? Soothing, healing, relaxing terahertz frequency is now available and as handy as flipping a switch. Terahertz technology is changing the course of what we were taught about how to maintain our health and well-being. To read more about this amazing breakthrough and to order your terahertz frequency want, go to naturalearthmedicine.com. That's naturalearthmedicine.com. back. You're listening to the Freedom Times News Hour. I'm Don Wassel, along with co-host Patricia Aiken. We are talking to Peter Rushton, who is the assistant editor and webmaster of Heritage and Destiny, which is a bi-monthly magazine based in England. Uh, covers British nationalism and nationalism throughout uh, Europe and uh, good old uh, North America and uh, Australia and New Zealand, wherever our people still live, even though we're being outnumbered more and more every day. Uh, I know this hour is going to get really quick, so I want to, uh, and I'll try and get to it again, but uh, give out some basics here. The magazine, again, that Peter is the assistant, assistant editor of, and uh, his uh, the editor is Mark Cotterell, somebody I've known for a long time. He's a, another stalwart activist, uh, has been in this for a long time, and it's uh, 
to his credit, he's a real, real good guy in every way. Okay, you want to go to heritageanddestiny.com. Heritageanddestiny.com. That's the website. I'm looking at it right now. And uh, not only has some articles from the actual print magazine, it's got other news and, and things you should be reading. For example, there's an obituary of, of Professor Roger Pearson. Some might be uh, familiar with him. He was uh, London-born, a Ph.D., eventually came to the U.S. and uh, founded Scott Towns in uh, publishing, uh, which uh, came out with many fine books, some of which I used to sell back in the day. And uh, there's also a, an article, Should Nationalists Follow and or Support Professional Sports Teams, which is a worth a read. And, in fact, that was an article that we reprinted or republished on castfootball.us, which is my site that covers sports, politics, and race. And uh, we did run that on there and got quite a bit of comment on it. Um, I'm looking. Get back there. There's a kitty cat on my lap. Okay. Um, and the Heritage and Destiny, I'm looking at the, uh, it's the January-February issue. And it's, I'll just go through it real quick before we uh, get back to asking Peter some questions. On the cover, it says, Peter Rushton looks at the 2021 UK census figures. Uh, there's reports on, uh, by Mark Carterell from the uh, Patriotic Alternatives 2022 Northern Conference. Uh, just breezing through it, there's an editorial on page two, as there always is, and this is issue number 112 of a bi-monthly. So it's been around for a while, and it's gotten bigger over time, too. The number of pages has increased. It's got color on the front and back now, which may not sound like much to some people, but, you know, it's the kind of in incremental progress that is nice to see. And... Uh, Take it from me, somebody who's been editing a print publication for almost 40 years, these things take a lot of work. I'm sure Peter and Mark put a lot of effort just to get every issue out. And uh, people listening, whether you're in America or somewhere in Europe, I, I know Republic Broadcasting has listeners all over the place. This is definitely worth subscribing to. Um, but just breezing through here, there's, a, again, an article by Peter Russian on the U.K. Census, latest U.K. Census. There's uh, some back and forth reflections on Hitler and Strasser. Uh, Heritage and Destiny has a lot of intellectual articles and people politely and civilly exchanging opinions on different things. Now, there's an article called From the Other Side of the Pond, which is, appears in each issue, and it's written by Ken Schmidt, who's also a uh, columnist for the Freedom Times newspaper. So we share the same columnist. And in fact, I can tell just from reading Heritage and Destiny, there's a number of American readers uh, just – they write letters to the editor. Sometimes they write articles. So there's a good cross-section there from both sides of the pond supporting this worthy publication. Uh, there's a TV review, Lord of the Rings, season one. And that goes on for a number of pages. There is a, a book review, Deterrence, Coercion, and Appeasement, British Grand Strategy, 1919 to 1940. That's written by David French. And it is reviewed by... None other than Peter Rushton. And then there's a joined in remembrance how Rhodesian and British patriots defied a labor government. There's then there's a report on uh, two different nationalist meetings held in late 2022, the traditional British Britain group conference and the patriotic alternative Northern conference. So you can see there's still a lot of activity, even though as uh, Peter or the intro to Peter noted, uh, 
things are not where we want them to be in, in Britain or in the U.S. when it comes to nationalism and patriotism. patriotism. And then there's some letters to the editor. There's always two pages of letters, letters to the editor. Uh, and then there's movement news update. Again, that's usually two pages, always written by Peter, the walking encyclopedia. And then on the back <laughs> page, there's a movie review written by Mark, Mark Cotterell. He always finishes each issue with a movie review. Peter, uh, let's get the info out now because uh, if somebody out there wants to subscribe, whether from the U.S. or another non-U.K. country, how? what's the best way to do it? Well, the, the simplest way is to go to the website and, uh, and, and follow the, uh, the, the links there. Uh, if you click on the uh, where it says Publications Reviews and then click on Journal, it will bring up the, uh, the, the, the details or to email the email address is heritageanddestiny at yahoo.com, uh, and you can actually get a sample issue if you want to try before you subscribe, and a sample issue is would be just $10 in the USA or Canada, or £5 here on, on this side of the pond. Uh, a subscription in the USA covers six issues, and then would be $60 US dollars or $70 Canadian dollars, or £35 in the USA. You're listening to Republic Broadcasting Network. Real news, real talk, real people. Because you can handle the truth. My name is John. I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee. And I started Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee. And after traveling so much to Europe, South America, and trying so many different coffees that were so good. And uh, every time I came back, uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee, so I figured that I had to do something about it. The biggest difference is really is on the beans and the roasting process, how we roast it, and how fresh it is. The fresher the roast, the better the quality. Here I have like all, all of the coffee. It's roasted within one to two days prior to being shipped. So it literally gets to consumers' house within three to five days after being roasted. If you like coffee... You have to try ours. It's fresh roasted. It's one of the best beans that we can get. And you will definitely see the difference. Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's REPUB10. American Freedom News is your daily website that will keep you fully informed on what both the good guys and bad guys are doing in the information war in which we are all engaged. Fed up with the lies of the fake news media and the censorship of big tech giants? American Freedom News is the solution as we provide truth and knowledge on all the vital issues of the day. American Freedom News believes in America first. The establishment wants us split into numerous hostile groups rather than uniting in a common cause against the corrupt oligarchy that is plundering America and the world. Many more Americans are waking up and realizing they are the victims of the ongoing Great Replacement and Great Reset. But the malevolent forces trying to systematically destroy America can and will be defeated. Be fully informed by reading American Freedom News, the best news and information site on the Internet. Go to AmericanFreedomNews.us and find out for yourself. That's AmericanFreedomNews.us. Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. 
Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plant. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste for the price of a cup of coffee. Hemppaste.com slash RBN. Free shipping on orders over $50. See the banners for Hemp Paste at republicbroadcasting.org and visit hemppaste.com slash RBN. This is the Freedom Times News Hour. I'm your co-host Don Wassel, along with Patricia Aiken. We are talking to Peter Rushton, the one and only Peter Rushton, the assistant editor of Heritage and Destiny by Monthly Magazine, and the website is heritageanddestiny.com. Please check it out. Support your patriotic print publications because there's not many left in the U.S., in the U.K., and in the U.S. and uh, as far as Heritage and Destiny, there's not a better one I know of if you want to stay on top of what's going on, not only in the U.K., but all of Europe uh, from a pro-white nationalist perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter, I, you mentioned John Tyndall, of course, and you know he's, he's somebody who had been on the scene there in your country from the early 1960s. He was a prolific writer, author, tremendous speaker, and yeah. uh, he was involved in the National Front, of course, and then that factionalized and uh, – Maybe we can get back to the how it declined, but I, I want to bring him up because he, you know, he was persistent. He eventually refounded the British National Party, which I guess had been in, uh, in existence earlier but fell apart. And but he he started up again and it prospered eventually. Uh, I think it was 1993, wasn't it? When uh, actually um, there were some candidates that were elected or one or two, and kind yeah. of grew from there. And then uh, then eventually, I guess uh, Nick Griffin, who sort of came along and. I guess he was an opportunist. I don't know. I just it seemed like he, you know, he took over the leadership. I guess you could say democratically, but still uh, of the British National Party. But John Tyndall, he was the founder. He was the prime mover behind it. It was doing really well. So if you could just summarize what what happened there, uh, your opinion of John Tyndall and, and Nick Griffin was he just a, an opportunist or someone who was incompetent, or was there more to it than that? Well, uh, in the case of John Tyndall, the extraordinary achievement of this man. Uh, in uh, not only remaining active as, as a racial nationalist and, of course, as a publisher of Spearhead magazine, bringing that out every month for so many years, from the early 1960s right the way through until his death in 2005. So, his unexpected death, too. That was a real real tragedy when he died. That was a real blow, yeah. You, you know, he was, he was actually working on the magazine right up pretty much until the moment of his death because he was working late at night he was facing a criminal trial under our notorious race laws. He was due to face trial two days after his death. And, and, and so he was getting, getting the magazine ready before he traveled north to, to appear in court. And uh, he, he, he just collapsed and died on the stairs on his way to bed after, after uh, work, working on the magazine that, that day. And his wife found him dead on the stairs. 
So he, he was really active right up until his final breath. You know, not just in, in, in political terms, in, in speaking, as you say, in, in writing, in editing a magazine, and on the front line facing prosecution for his, for his political, for his devotion to the interests of the British people and the, and the white race worldwide. So a very, a very great man, John Tyndall, and not least the fact that, as you say, after being knocked down uh, with the collapse of the National Front round about 1979-80, he picked himself up again picked up the movement. It took several years for the BNP to, to re-emerge as a credible force. But by the end of the 1980s, which was about the time I was first getting involved in, 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 in the party, about the end of the 1980s, 1990, it was beginning to get uh, strong again. And as you said a moment ago, in 1993, won uh, a council seat in the East End of London. Now, this created headlines everywhere because the the liberal media were particularly horrified, and even the liberal media in the USA were horrified that this happened in the East End of London, because there was this great wartime mythology, Winston Churchill and the Blitz spirit and all of this to do with the East End of London. And yet it was there that having supposedly won the war in 1945, not only did, did Great Britain lose its empire, but we, we lost our own cities and the, the heroic East End of London that had been built up so much in propaganda uh, worldwide during the Second World War, those heroic Britons of the East End of London were, were, were really thoroughly betrayed and faced some of the very worst of the uh, conquest, the ethnic conquest of our own country. Uh, and in response to that, they, uh, they, they voted. At one time, it was a, a stronghold of Sir Oswald Mosley's Union movement post-war, then it became a stronghold of the of the National Front. But latterly, it was the BNP in 1993 that made that first electoral breakthrough. Very difficult under the British system, the British first-past-the-post system. Much more difficult to win elections in England, in, in Great Britain, than to win elections in many parts of Europe where the electoral system is a proportional system, so you can, right. with a small percentage, you can elect members of parliament even, but not in the United Kingdom. Right. Uh, so we, we triumphed over that systemic uh, problem. And De Derek Beacon, who happily is still alive, we were speaking to him just a few hours ago on the, on the, on the telephone. He hopes to be here in, in Lancashire to attend our meeting later this year. Derek Beacon won that, won that election and was ele elected a councillor. But then very soon after that, the usual problems orchestrated by the state, orchestrated by our traditional enemies, the usual problems of splits and bitter divisions occurred, especially in London, often violent divisions. And uh, uh, those, those serious problems, and again, serious violence orchestrated by the left, this, crea this created a number of setbacks in the 1990s that even after that win in 1993 and a number of strong election results, disillusioned many of our members. It was at that point that the opportunist, as you say, Nick Griffin, stepped in and somehow persuaded people that the grass would be greener on the other side, you know, that it, that it was a, a change of leadership would solve all our problems. And some somehow people would stop campaigning against uh, the BNP, the, 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 the violence would stop and people would be more tolerant of the BNP if we had a different leader. 
et cetera, et cetera. I was shocked. I was shocked when Griffin defeated uh, John Tyndall and became the head of the BMP. I mean, it was shocking. Yeah, it was. It was shocking. It was shocking to me and to and to many of us. But he he was very crafty in 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 saying different things to different people. To one lot of people, he'd present himself as the as as the great radical. To others, he he'd say, "Well, no, we need a more moderate leader." And John Tyndall is too radical. So you know, it's a, it's a very crafty business. To yeah, he seemed to sort of flip flop. Uh, you know, reinvent himself periodically. Sometimes as a radical, sometimes as a moderate. Is that good at yeah, correct? Yeah. That's absolutely right. And, and historically speaking, for the, those li- listeners who are familiar with the history of the Soviet Union, that's exactly how Joseph Stalin came to power. He, what, one minute he presented himself as a radical and the next minute he presented himself as a consolidator and as, you know, as, uh, as, as the great anti-Trotskyist. So he, he, Stalin advanced himself in this crafty manner from behind the scenes. And, and that's, that's pretty much what, what Griffin did. And, and then, of course, the worst thing of all, uh, he he benefited from trends that were already happening uh, while John Tyndall was leader, and uh, in in the northwest of England, my own area, uh, Griffin came in as a sort of carpetbagger to uh, to to benefit from from the work that people were doing at, at local level there. Uh, but the moment anyone was seen as a threat to him, he moved in and was prepared to destroy a branch, destroy an entire region. It was a very tragic business. So all of the all of the all of the successes that uh, that went on at local level were within a year or two destroyed, and then the process would repeat itself. Another area of the country would become strong and then get undermined, and uh, there was very little political education in the movement. So people were. People are attracted to nationalism for any number of reasons, but instead of developing those interests and turning uh, activists into more dedicated and uh, well-trained activists, Griffin was happy just to take their money. And this great process of disillusionment went on, and in the end, of course, the whole thing collapsed. Um, Two members of the European Parliament, Griffin and and uh, my, my good friend Andrew Bronze were elected as members of the European Parliament. But within a couple of years of that, uh, the, the, the party was in a state of civil war, partly over finance. And now, sadly, the party is still registered, but the BNP, in effect, no longer exists. It, will have no, it hasn't had a serious election camp- candidate for about four years now. Of course, you always document that in Heritage and Destiny and the Movement Update uh, at the, uh, in, towards the back of each issue. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the, the current issue, or the least most current one I have, which is uh, January, February, mentions a couple nationalist conferences that were uh, covered by yeah. Heritage and Destiny. Um, just look, I mean, and I, I got to say, it's it's sad. I mean, I, I read Heritage and Destiny cover to cover, but it's so sad to read of all the splits and failures and of course you know it's, it's like what happens in this country too but of course you've done more over there too the i think our nationalist brothers in the uk have been a lot more active than the ones here in the u.s should have been but just looking at the the scene today uh what do you think of even trying to have an electoral vehicle anymore or, or are there other methods or what what do you see what are the bright spots of, of british nationalism i think there are there are two bright spots at the moment the first bright spot is that, is that some of the old BNP campaigners 
are still active and still involved, notably our good friend Julian Leppert, who's the last uh, racial nationalist councillor still standing. He's standing for re-election this year uh, in a party called the British Democrats, uh, whose leader, Dr. Jim Luthwaite, a Cambridge-educated archaeologist, he's standing for election in Bradford, just over the border in Yorkshire, from where I am now. I'll be over there on Tuesday supporting his campaign. So at that electoral level, although it's much a much smaller number of candidates than existed 10 or 15 years ago, things are starting to rebuild. The other bright spot is that uh, outside, slightly outside the electoral framework, uh, organisations like Patriotic Alternative on the one hand and the traditional Britain group on the other, both of which you, you mentioned having conferences reviewed in H&D, they are starting to bring in we're starting to see after after 10 or 15 years when there weren't many young people coming into the movement, there's now a number of young, highly educated, highly committed people coming into various forms of nationalism, whether cultural activity on the on online or de- uh, demonstrations on the streets, writing articles, attending and speaking at conferences, a whole range of, of activities. The challenge now is to ensure that those young people do not become disillusioned. That right. their, 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 their spirit of resistance is channeled in a productive manner uh, because if it's not channeled in a productive manner, people begin to turn in on themselves and their fr- act out their frustrations in internal factional struggle. And that's the sort of thing, of course, we can do without. Or else some people, some young people... Uh, spend too much time on the internet and get drawn into craziness via, via the internet. And that's exploited again by the state and by our enemies. So the, 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 the positive side is that there are, there are young people coming in. The challenge is to channel that energy, channel that enthusiasm in a productive manner. Well, you know, quality, quality is very important, even more so than quantity, in, in my opinion. Um, my co-host Patricia has a question for you, Peter. Go ahead, Patricia. Right. Oh, thanks, Don. Um, Peter, th- thank you so much. It's been a fascinating conversation here. I've enjoyed it. Um, I just became aware last week that um, a man that a podcaster that we know as Sven Longshanks has been um, convicted in the UK. And um, I was pretty amazed when, when I saw what the BBC wrote about him. They would, you know, the judge, you know, called him a stain on humanity. And they tried to make him out to be such this ugly racist. And, and really, even the BBC couldn't do it. He sounded like just a really good man concerned about his people. Um, are you familiar with um, with his conviction by any chance? You're, you're absolutely right, Patricia. He's a very nice guy. His real name's James Allchurch. I know him quite well. In fact, uh, during the very early stages of his trial, uh, James was in, in touch with me uh, regularly and seeking some archival information on matters to do with previous race law cases. Uh, it's, it's important to note he was facing 15 charges. The positive news is he was actually found not guilty on five of those charges. So, that, you know, we, we, we can sometimes be very negative about our chances in court cases. Let's, let's remember he actually won one-third one third of the cases against him, in the, in, even in that trial. He, he managed to win and his defence team managed to win, which is, is a very positive thing and a positive thing in terms of legal precedence. 
but you're right that the that the state at the moment is seeking to to portray perfectly reasonable and civil political discussion uh, in in James's case as 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 being inciting hatred and uh, he's defi- I, I think he's he, he, it's inevitable he's going to go to prison. He's going to be sentenced on the 28th of this month, and he's the, the judge has made clear uh, that he's thinking in terms of a prison sentence of years rather than months. So it's it's a, a, t- a terrible, terrible business that that he's facing. But he's a very brave guy, and a very uh, a very polite and intelligent guy. He's not some some wild-eyed crazy, you know. But he, here here in Britain and and all over Europe. Uh, our enemies are increasingly seeking to portray us not only as hate mongers, but very often as terrorists. The Terrorism Act, and particularly something called Schedule 7 of the Terrorism Act, is often used in the UK when people are entering the country in, in, in an airport. Schedule 7 of the Terrorism Act can be used uh, indiscriminately. They don't need to have any grounds for suspicion at all to stop you under Schedule 7, to take your phone, to take your computer, and to question you. I've been I've been questioned under Schedule 7 when entering the country at an airport in London, questioned for six hours. An, an, an open-ended series of questions. They don't need any grounds for suspicion at all. They just ask any number of questions about your political activities, perfectly lawful political activities. They can quiz you about, and you are obliged to answer. You have no right to silence under Schedule 7. Last September, when uh, a friend of ours from H&D was flying into the country to speak at our meeting here in Preston, our young friend uh, Isabel Peralta flying in from Spain, I was at the airport to meet her in, in Manchester. She was stopped under Schedule 7, stopped and questioned for almost six hours again, and before being released in the early hours of the morning. The outcome of that was... We had to speak at a meeting the following day, with uh, both of us having had just an hour's sleep. This is the sort of harassment that's routine in the United Kingdom today, in this great democracy that people <laughs> supposedly fought and died to preserve this great British democracy. It's a country that's increasingly no longer British and a country that increasingly doesn't have basic freedoms. We know, uh, Peter, you... I mentioned the uh, article you wrote in the uh, January-February issue of Heritage and Destiny about the UK latest census figures, and I, I noticed about the headline on the front page, there's a quote there, whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. So I think that probably summarizes pretty well uh, the article you wrote. But here in the U.S., we're always familiar uh, that we're about to become a non-white country. We're pretty close right now. A lot of people, you hear 2042 or something like that, but a lot of people think it'll happen even before then. What are the demographic trends in the U.K., and how soon will the U.K. join the uh, United States as a non-white country if present trends continue? Yeah, well, of course, here in the U.K., uh, the, the worst situation is in the, in the major cities. We now have two, two major cities, in, both in the Midlands, Birmingham and Leicester, that are majority non-white. Uh, as far as the country as a whole is concerned, uh, the, uh, certainly the percentage that is white British on the current census, and the, this, this is census figures just for England and Wales. It's slightly complicated because due to COVID, the Scottish census figures are not yet available. 
So these figures I'm giving are just about England and Wales. But uh, we, we were 10 years earlier, uh, we were over 80% white British. That's fallen in 10 years from 20, 2011 to 2021, fallen from just over 80% to 74.4% white British. Now, uh, there's the the remainder, the remaining quarter of that, a significant number are from Eastern Europe, so at least are still white. But uh, the England and Wales is now uh, roughly more than nine percent Asian, by which Asian in the in UK terms means people from India, Pakistan and Bangladesh primarily. So nine point three percent Asian, four percent black. which means primarily people from Africa and the Caribbean islands. Another roughly 3% of of mixed race. Uh, So, yeah, it's it's getting an an increasingly diverse, as they like to say, picture. But this this is a misleading word, diversity, because what, what actually, in most cases in the UK, it's particular ghettos. So you go to Tower Hamlets in East London, that's a Bangladeshi ghetto. You go to Oldham, my old town of Oldham, and that's mainly pa- Bangladeshi and Pakistani. And you go to certain parts of those towns, and they and they, they are particularly Asian-dominated or black-dominated. You you can you can look at if you fight an election, you see the lists. You know the lists of 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 the the names of the voters. And of course, with people from India and Pakistan. It's not like it's not like with with blacks in the USA, where you can't tell necessarily from somebody's name unless they've adopted these weird names that uh, that blacks increasingly use in the USA. But in 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 the case of Asians, you can tell usually just from the name and street after street after street uh, is entirely Asian in parts of Oldham, parts of Bradford, parts of Preston some of these other northern northern towns. You know, it's interesting, so, too, if I could interrupt you. I'm sorry, Peter, but I just no thinking about now the Indians and Pakistanis in the U.S. are generally uh, uh, generally seen as, you know, not troublemakers. They don't tend to be in gangs and they're not aggressive against whites, whereas it's a pretty different situation there in the U.K., isn't it? Yeah, I think that reflects the different type of people we're talking about. You have to remember a lot of these a, a lot of these Indians and Pakistanis Two different types came over. There were people like like our prime minister's family, who who were uh, the business elite of Africa in the days of the empire. Uh, we the, the British Empire imported people from India to be the sort of business class of Africa to do the sort of things that, frankly, Africans were thought not to be capable of doing. Not uh, and uh, and and eventually, when those African countries became independent. The African dictators resented these Indians and threw them out. So those people were an educated type of class. But there was also a semi-literate or illiterate group of people from Pakistan and India that came over to be cheap labor in the cotton mills, in the textile industry of northern England. And those people, the children of those families, very often from very poor semi-literate backgrounds, the children, many of the children of those families are the type of people who are now in dr- drawn into crimin- criminal gangs. Now, I must make clear, not least for the benefit of any policeman listening, I'm not saying this to incite hatred against those people. To a certain extent, those people are the victims of globalism 
the victims of internationalism. They were brought here from the other side of the world because they were cheap labor to work in a declining industry. When that declining industry finally disappeared and the international capitalists, the global capitalists, moved their money to the other side of the world, started producing textiles on the other side of the world, then, of course, those people were jobless, and their children and grandchildren were jobless. And many of them drifted in to crime, particularly drug dealing. And this sort of gangland activity, uh, they've become... uh, you, You get African gangs in some parts of the country, Pakistani gangs in another part of the country, and it really, this becomes a sink of, of, of criminality. Yeah. Uh, uh, Peter, let me, let me... because of the Asians, but because of the, the, you know, these global factors that have pulled them here. Okay. But, yeah, let me, uh, sorry to interrupt you again, but uh, we're running out of time, and I want to give okay. out the base, basic information again. Peter Rushton is the man we're talking to. He's the assistant editor and webmaster of Heritage and Destiny, which is a bi-monthly, excellent bi-monthly publication out of England. Their website is heritageanddestiny.com. Please go to that website and then click where it says publications slash reviews and then click journal and subscribe to it, whether you're in the U.S. or the U.K. or anywhere else. It's it's a worthy publication to subscribe to. And while I'm at it, I'm the editor of the Freedom Times newspaper, so please go to americanfreedomnews.us and subscribe to the Freedom Times if you haven't already. Print publications, patriotic print publications, nationalist print publications are worth supporting. There's not many left. We're up against it in a lot of ways in our respective countries, as everyone knows. So please support those who are sticking their neck out and still fighting the good fight because there are a lot of us. We just have to get better organized and support each other better. Uh, Peter, I know we're going to probably hear the music here in a minute or two, but just let's finish on a, on a positive note. Uh, of course, we're all aware of the great things happening in Hungary and to a lesser extent in Italy. What are, the, what are some of the other positives out there, real briefly, other countries or parties that we can look to maybe for some progress? Yeah. Well, well I'll, tell you what, even I'll, if- I'll tell you what, Peter, we're going to have to hold that until the next interview. I want to thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. It's been great uh, interviewing you. Thank you very much, Tom. Take care there. Patricia, thanks. All the best. Talk to you next week. Great. All the listeners, take care. We'll talk to you too. Hello, I'm Dr. Leonard Horowitz. I was right 30 years ago in warning the world about threatening lab virus outbreaks, AIDS, and Ebola. I was right 20 years ago when FBI Director Robert Mueller made me a suspect in the anthrax mailings because I warned the Bureau before the CIA's biocrime and Cipro sales psyops happened. I was right about COVID-19 being an AIDS-laced mutagen plan to resurge this fall to excuse officials' profitable depopulation globalization agendas. And I was right about the only safeguards being antioxidants and holy spiritual sustenance. Vitamin C, D, zinc, chlorophyll, oxygen, and oxysilver especially transmits the frequency resonance to neutralize the expanded function bioweapon. Oxysilver is a double superconductor of the healing power of love.